When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Game Dev Unchained, the number one podcast about game development and the lifestyle thereof. I am your host, Brandon Pham, and joining me this week, a special guest, Jason Roar. How you doing, Jason? How's it going, man? All right, so I'm going to pipe you in. Now we can finally hear you, dude. Thanks for joining us. Oh, sorry. (laughs) It's good to be here. Awesome. So this is the part of the podcast where we let our guests introduce themselves to our listeners and viewers out there, who you are, where you've been, what you're up to. Yeah. So I'm an independent uh, game designer, uh, developer, programmer, one person shop. Uh, I've been making games for uh, 15 or 16 years now. And during that time, I've made uh, 19 games. So my most recent game is One Hour, One Life, um, which I've been working on for about four and a half years now. Um, and it's it's out and I'm still still putting out weekly updates for that. But um, yeah, that's my my 19th game. So I've been doing this a long time. I've uh, seen a lot of uh, things come and go. And I've uh, <laughs> uh, seen the sort of I started my career right as the in, independent game development scene was kind of on the rise and have uh, seen the, the glory days and the bust days and the in the apocalypse and seen seen through it all right so this is actually a very interesting topic that we're about to go into so i i found you through multiple articles there's actually a few uh i would say paul revere's out there kind of talking about how the indie landscape has been changing and been changing uh for for better or for worse but i guess in this instant uh can you kind of give us some kind of uh is it a a bang or bust right now where we are with the indie scene uh well i, I so i you know I, I gave a talk at gdc last year uh that's sort of a uh, i'm a i'm an indie apocalypse skeptic mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so i there's something that has happened but the way people interpret it is that nobody's making money with independent video games anymore. And that's just mm-hmm. completely false. Um, there's a lot of people making way more money with independent video games than they ever have made in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, now, because the audience has gotten so much bigger. Um, so what happened though, was that of course the marketplace got more crowded uh, and a place like steam, which was the sort of gatekeeper historically for independent video games uh, back in the day, I mean, people who are, who are putting games on Steam today probably don't know this or don't remember it, but there was a time where you had to beg to get your game on Steam. You had yeah. to have some kind of connection or you had to show your game to Steam. They were vetting games. They were just flat out. Actually, so for Sleep is Death, which came out in 2010, uh, I don't think I even tried to put it on Steam, um, but they eventually wrote to me and were like, oh, Sleep is Death looks cool, dude. Like, let's put this on Steam. And we kind of had a few emails back and forth. Uh, And then they went radio silent for like Mm. months. (laughs) And then finally I kept emailing them and they never emailed back. And then somebody else, the person who I'd been talking to at steam had left steam. And then somebody else got back to me and said, no, we changed our mind. (laughs) So so sleep (laughs) is death was never on steam back in 2010. Right. 
Um, and then for my next game inside of Starfield Sky, I was like, this is a much better fit for Steam. Like, you know, it really should be on Steam. It, it sold well off. I mean, it, Sleep is Death sold well on my own website as well. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I had to call, you know, basically email a friend who had games on Steam and said, who's your connection at Steam? And then I was emailing this person directly and they were hesitant. And then for the Castle Doctor in the game after Inside Still for Starfield Sky, they're also extremely hesitant. They're like, dude, just put this on green light. I'm like, this game has already made a bunch of money off Steam. It shouldn't go on mm-hmm. green light. Mm-hmm. I basically kind of want, you know, it was a squeaky wheel. And then they were finally like, okay, yeah, it can go on Steam. But back <laughs> then, when Inside of Starfield Sky came out on Steam, it was, which would have been like 2011 or 12, it was the only game that launched that day. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And they did all this stuff with me where they're like, no, you can't come out on Monday because this one, you know, triple A games coming out on Monday. No, Tuesday's mm-hmm. already taken and Thursday, you know, so they, wow. they, they pushed me back a week and they sketched, you know, it was a very hands on kind of thing. And they even redesigned. So I submitted a logo for Inside of Starfield Sky and I guess they didn't like it or thought it was too confusing. Wow. So their art department inside Valve redesigned my logo for me without they didn't even really ask me they were just like here's your logo <laughs> wow man that's no, night and day really, because yeah. because right now it's, it's all automated right yeah it's a different time uh, they still hand vet something um something. I can't remember well yeah so they still play the game make sure that it launches on some mm-hmm. test platforms that they have I internally see. and they look for anything that flagrantly violates the rules right so uh one hour one life which is my most recent game i it launched off steam back in february 2018 didn't launch on steam until uh november of that year so i you mm-hmm. know made a bunch of money off steam i was very successful off steam and then i finally brought it to steam and one of the things i did because uh, i was trying to see if i could do it without ever going on steam right it's like can I, can you build up a big successful independent hit off steam completely you know hey some people did it like minecraft did it minecraft mm-hmm. never been on steam right Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, you know, hoping, hoping that it would be, it would get big enough that steam wouldn't, I wouldn't need to put it on steam, uh, mm-hmm. but it didn't. So I eventually put it on steam, but I built this whole kind of infrastructure for, um, you know, tracking player stats, tracking numbers of hours played, tracking, uh, player reviews. So mm-hmm. off steam inside the game itself, there was this thing where you could go and type a review and, you know, recommend or not recommend. And it showed your number of hours played and that got posted on the homepage for the game. And that's still there. If you go look at one hour on life homepage, you'll see all these user reviews kind of looks nice. like the steam review system. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had that in place and it works inside the client. You don't have to go in like into some separate client to post your review. It's right there. Right. When you die, you can hit post review. Right. Inside the game. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was working great. But when I went to release the game on steam, they were like trying to solicit user reviews inside the game is against Steam's policy. Oh. And I was not submitting. I was not trying to solicit Steam user reviews. Mm. Whatever reviews people posted inside the game would still go onto my own website. But yeah. I, had, I had to tear that out for the Steam version. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, anyway, so so that kind of stuff. They still obviously they played the game. They're not. It's not completely automated, right? They, they mm-hmm. looked at it in some some capacity and noticed this one feature mm-hmm. um, and said, "Hey, this uh, this is this is against our rules, right?" Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. they're definitely not. They're not vetting games for quality. Uh, or whether it's good enough for Steam anymore. And now, of course, they don't even have green light. It's now pay right. 100 bucks or whatever and, and yeah. get right in. Um, so that has changed a lot. Um, so there's a lot more games out there. I think what happened essentially was that pretty bad games back in got, the day, got in, if they yeah. got on Steam and Steam got behind them because they were innovative in some way, uh, but there wasn't really that big of an audience for them if they were had to buy with the market <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, would make a lot of money on Steam. Um, and so what's happening now is essentially games that aren't that great after all. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they're not 
you know, those kinds of games are not making money anymore. That's the indie apocalypse, right? Like games mm-hmm. that you play for an hour or two and kind of experience some kind of, uh, you know, story inside or whatever. Players don't really in a marketplace of games that are all buying for their attention. Players don't really value that uh, mm-hmm. in the way that they did a long time ago. So a lot of those people who are trying to still use that same model of make like, you know, make this kind of somewhat innovative uh, three hour narrative kind of experimental mm-hmm. narrative game those games are flopping hard right now mm-hmm. um, because you don't like, so the other thing is that you have like, I don't know, you've seen probably sales curves for games from back in the day. It's like mm-hmm. this big spike on launch day with this long kind of mm-hmm. exponential uh, decay tail. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't, that's not what the curves look like anymore. Mm-hmm. So launch day is not your biggest day anymore. It's like kind of, uh, for me, it was like five days after my launch mm-hmm. on Steam that I had my biggest day. Wow. Right. So what's going on there? It's like, well, there's no press. press. People don't read the press anymore. All that sort of like press embargo and all that stuff that we used to do. That doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Like there are games that are flopping that get 50 articles written on launch day and they still flop. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and my game had no articles written about it on launch day and it was a big success. Right. So it's like, <laughs> what is that? Mm-hmm. Like, I guess people don't read the press anymore. It's a post Gamergate world. Maybe I don't know exactly what uh-huh. is happening there, but um, you know, you used to go on a place like Rock Paper Shotgun or Kotaku yeah. and see, you know, hundreds of comments. Mm-hmm. Now you go on Rock Paper Shotgun and you'll see four comments, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so on an article, right? So the audience is not as active there. Um, and so I think most people are finding out about games mostly through word of mouth and like YouTube is kind of like a word of mouth, digitally mm-hmm. word of mouth and Twitch as well, right? And so in order for word of mouth to work, your game has to be a game that you play for a while, right? Because mm-hmm. if you only play it for an hour or two hours, you might go and tell everybody about it the next day, but you're not going to tell everybody about it the next week again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the games that are successful are the games that um, kind of you play for, I mean, <laughs> the average person who played one hour in life played it for, I can't remember what this number is. It's something like four months or something like this. Wow. <laughs> it's like, you know, so it's from when they first started playing to when they finally quit, right? It's like, mm-hmm. so uh, during those four months, you're telling people about the game over and over again, right? And so that's mm-hmm. what, and, and you can make multiple YouTube videos. If you're a YouTuber, you can make multiple YouTube videos about it. If you're a streamer, you can keep streaming it. If it's a, like like a little like three hour long kind of narrative type game, what are you going to show on your stream? What are you going to mm-hmm. show on YouTube? You know, mm-hmm. and you're not mm-hmm. going to be talking about it three months from now. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I think in, in, that way, I think also just players' tastes have changed and so on. But the games that have uh, fit into this mold of like, you know, some kind of replayable, deep, kind of infinite, infinite, unique situation generator kind of game, those games have made so much more money mm-hmm. than uh, the old indie super hits that we talk about, right? We talk about like Braid or Fez or Mm-mm-mm. Super Meat Boy or something like that, you know, those indie game, the movie uh, games. And it's like, oh my gosh. Back in the day, it was like, you know, 2007, I was like, Braid made $5 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Stardew Valley has made like, I would say probably $40 million. Yeah. And it's just one guy. You know, you know Rust, Rust, Rust has made, you know, $120 million, right? Oh, my God. You know, and, and, you know, so Factorio, again, you know, at least 20, 30. I mean, this is a rough estimates, right? But mm-hmm. I mean. $5 million is, is sort of a, an indie flop <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, for, for, you know, I don't know. So, so it's like, and, and even like, you know, a game like the witness, which is Jonathan blows next game doesn't really fit into this model very well. It kind of defied all odds and became a, a, a pretty big independent hit just mm-hmm. because he had 
you know, he was such a well-known guy and the game is so amazing for what it is. Right. Yeah. But there's not a lot of people still playing it. You know? Yeah. There's a lot more people playing don't starve right now than playing the witness and don't starve mm. is like <laughs> 10 years really old, old. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I think that that, so the witness in a few games have kind of defied the odds just because they were so amazing that you just couldn't not play them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the witness is a big beefy for a content type game. Mm-hmm. It's like, one of the biggest beefiest content it's just mm-hmm. insane it just keeps going and going and going and being more innovative and more like jaw dropping and you know so you just like you can you really sink yourself into it mm-hmm. um so i think in that way it does work as a sort of a word of mouth game um mm-hmm. because you know anybody who actually plays the witness for real is going to be playing it for a good month <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? like yep still oh my god the witness is getting better and better and it's like <sighs> oh it's blowing my mind again you're gonna keep talking about it right yeah yeah um, yeah but there have been people who have played one hour in life uh, since launch, right? It's been out for 18 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there have been people who have played almost every day for 18 months, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, because it is this emergent kind of situation generator online, you never, every time you play, it's totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's just this sort of infinite replayability associated with it. I mean, I'm not saying that's good or healthy <laughs> to play mm-hmm. a game for 18 months, uh, but definitely uh one hour life is capable of something like that and where, where the witness isn't i mean you know most people would finish the witness before 18 months i, I hope mm-hmm. man you're covering a lot of uh, uh situational things that you know i've been very curious about too and i want to unfoil some of this first of all you were the before and after well steam green light and then now right where they're mostly uh not really vetting but just looking through and playing games to kind of make sure they're not incriminalizing their platform <laughs> uh right. with like yeah bad bad taste in games or anything that might you know get them into trouble yeah, but anything illegal yeah anything illegal that's more their process now so like do you feel but i definitely empathize with what you're saying how now we have it seems chaotic but only because we have so many options right uh where before i guess in the steam green Knight days we had someone kind of helping but it was more like that was the single source of if you're indie, you have to put yourself in that platform. And if you make it or not, uh, it can make or break your game kind of mentality. Do you feel that was a more curated process versus now? Which one would be, which one feels better? Yeah, I guess. I mean, that's, a, that's a good question because there's a lot of good games that didn't make it on Steam or wouldn't a lot, weren't. I'm not talking about green. I'm talking about pre green light, right? Like, yeah. Like, even before the days, it was like, does steam think your game is good enough um and it's not, in a lot of cases i mean i don't know that one i don't know that sleep is death was good enough for steam maybe i mean it was pretty it was pretty hard to get into it was pretty hard to find people to play with didn't have any centralized servers kind of just said here type an ip type in your friend's ip address to connect <laughs> you know mm-hmm. it was a, a two-player game that had no matchmaking um so it probably you know they were probably right it probably wasn't that good of a fit for steam um you know and, and as, a, as an example i have thought about oh you know sleep is death could be released on steam now right and mm-hmm. if i were to do that i would take you know a month or two and add matchmaking right i would take mm-hmm. a month or two and sand off the rough edges that in 2010 made steam say no because mm-hmm. they were probably right um and so uh yeah so that's a, that's a really good question i don't know um you know does this curate you know, the curated platform, you know, favors certain people over others, like people who have any kind of connection. Like I had a friend who had a game on Steam, right? So mm-hmm. that gave me an email address to Pester back for, for Inside of Starfield Sky, for example. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so I had somebody to pester and uh, that worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I had, didn't have anybody to pester, the game wouldn't have gone on Steam. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so that doesn't seem that good. Um, uh, on the other hand, you know, I guess games that kind of get vetted sort of and, and, and supported by Steam don't, aren't necessarily successful today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'll just use two case studies. These are my friends' games. I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't like, I, I try to avoid calling out people, right? But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I did give this indie apocalypse talk uh, at GDC. And when I gave it, I did call out four games. Uh, and these were games that were announced at, you know, publicly announced by the developers to have sort of failed or failed to meet their expectations, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, game like Where the Water Tastes Like Wine, game like Tacoma, mm-hmm. game like, uh, uh, introversions uh scanner sombra and uh there was one more and i can't remember it right now but mm-hmm. oh aztez um so these were games that had these post-mortem articles written by the devs were like oh my gosh we're never going to pay back our investors in some cases or whatever we're, we're screwed right mm-hmm. um so i didn't feel so bad about calling those guys out uh i wasn't calling them out i was just using them as examples that they were right. examples of themselves and they're mm-hmm. they're all I know, I know all of them right so it's like it kind of feels weird talking about them on stage but it's important to actually talk about concrete examples. Right. So this, uh, what the example I'm going to talk about now has not been called out yet. I've just been watching these two games very closely because uh, they're my friends' games, and I'm like curious about how they're going to do, and mm-hmm. curious about how they fit into my understanding of this whole world. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two games are Overland and Noita. Mm-hmm. Uh, Overland came out about a week ago, mm-hmm. and Noita came out two days ago, three days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Overland is by Adam Saltzman and yep. his team. It's almost, he's the Cannibal guy and uh, the Fiji, right. uh, you know, publisher. Dear friend of the podcast. Yeah, they've been on yeah, uh, several yeah. times. He's yeah. a great guy. Great guy. Uh, and uh, I've been watching that game for years. I mean, he's been working on it for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I played early versions of it and so on back in the day. Um, hold on just a second. No worries. I actually have a, it's funny. Um, I have a, <laughs> this is a total tangent, but it's a somewhat interesting topic because you just heard the beeping thing go off. Um, so we had a b- really bad fire here in California, a forest fire called the uh, the Camp Fire. I don't know. It was in, it was the one that burned down the town of Paradise. It was kind of probably national news mm-hmm. uh, back uh, last year. And so we had all of our windows closed and we had to run a HEPA filter and stuff here in Davis because the smoke. I mean, you literally couldn't see across the street, really. Right, <laughs> right, right. It right. was so bad. And so we got ended up getting one of these like particle meters to just check our air quality inside of our house. And it was horrible inside of our house. And that's why we got the HEPA filter. But the other thing the particle meter does is track CO2. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was going off just now because I have the windows closed because I'm recording this podcast and mm-hmm. just me talking in this room. For the past <laughs> You're killing yourself. The CO up, <laughs> the CO2 up above a thousand parts per million when it's mm-hmm. naturally outside. It's 400, right? Yeah, so that's yeah, why yeah. the alarm is going off. So I'm, right, I'm getting right. a little groggy. I'm getting a little groggy. Here. <laughs> anyway, so I'm watching last. these two. I'm watching these two games. I played. Um, I played Noita at the IGF. I mean, I'm also friends with Petri, uh, who's the guy who did Cran Physics back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, really good friends with him, and watched the kind of development of Noita from the sidelines. Only played it once or twice uh, before it came out. Played Overland quite a bit before it came out, um, and so. Overland, as far as I can tell, just looking at the numbers, looking at Steam charts, which is where I go to look at how many people are actually playing a game, yeah. uh, has not done well. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's gotten negative review scores on Steam. First of all, there's just not that many reviews posted. There's not mm-hmm. that many people playing it. It's like it just came out and there was like never really got much above 100 active players. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Noita, on the other hand, which just came out a couple of days ago, immediately shot up to like 3,000 simultaneous players, right? Mm. 95% positive review score and seen tons of reviews posted, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just looking at those two games, I mean, they're both, they, they're both kind of examples of what I'm talking about to some degree, right? These infinite mm-hmm. unique situation generators, uh, they're both extremely hard games, uh, where you can, I mean, if you really wanted to play overland all the way through, I'm sure it would take you a long time. And every time you play it's slightly different. Um, Noita also is a, is a roguelike. They're both kind of roguelikes in a way. Uh, and, and Noita is this, uh, uh, game with uh, with wizard physics in, in a cave and every time you play it's totally different and these crazy things happen um but so they both kind of fit the model but why is one successful and the other one isn't i think it just boils down to people like it. it's just it's mm-hmm. kind of dumb right mm-hmm. it's like people like noita better mm-hmm. that's all there is to it i mean like you people play overland and they get this kind of like oh this kind of beats me down and it's not very pleasant to play and it's not that interesting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and they play Noita and they're like, Oh my God. And they're like, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so at the end of the day, it's still the same thing. It always was right. Um, we could talk about types of games or markets or what's popular and what's not, or what, you know, what players are willing to pay for and not, but you know, still making a really great, 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 great game is still really hard. Um, but separate from that, it was just, it was brand new, never before seen game design in terms of like what players are actually doing in the game, but it just wasn't that good. And I, you know, I tried a bunch of different variations on it and never could find a version that was that interesting. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sometimes get to a point as a designer where I'm just like, I've explored this place as far as I can explore it. I got to kind of pick the best version that I found and kind of throw my hands up in the air and just move on. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, my game Primrose on the iPhone was also, uh, it was a, a, a tile placement kind of puzzle game really inventive new mechanic in there about how tiles were cleared and how it worked and really cool in a lot of ways, but it's just never, I could never get the design to where I wanted it to be in terms of how compelling and how interesting it was. Mm-hmm. And I tried a bunch of different variations and a bunch of different, you know, finally you get to this point where it's just like, eh, I guess I got to leave this one behind. I'm not going to solve this problem. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore it's just not as good. You know, like if you compare it to drop seven, which is a similar game and a game that kind of inspired me in that space, it's like, Oh, I want to make a game like drop seven, but, you know, innovative in a different way. Drop seven is way better than Primrose. <laughs> that's just mm-hmm. how that's why way more people are playing drop seven right now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been like 10 years, 10 years later than are playing uh, Primrose. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's not really a, a lot of people are looking for some kind of formula <laughs> something or some mm-hmm. kind of magic bullet or some kind of one weird trick. And, and, you know, there really isn't one. I mean, sometimes, you know, just it's, it's as simple as well, you know, people like this game more, or it's more interesting to play. Right. Right. Um, I grew up in playing and I would like to make games that are single player narrative. And as we are discovering how uh, viewership and uh, streaming is becoming such a huge component to how people play games or buy games, uh, which is something that I think you're kind of vocalizing that we need to be more conscientious to kind of make this a part of the game design to make sure that there is an overlap with players who are initially excited about it and people who are slowly discovering it to kind of make um, make sense of the upswing later after launch, right? And so if the game isn't long enough and there's nothing to talk about and people are discovering it, it's slowly, I, I feel if we're looking at that graph, little gaps in between that slowly just dies out and not create any, right. any interest. So are you well, saying that, 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 the, that, that, go ahead. That spike that you get, that spike that you get at the beginning mm-hmm. is much smaller than it used to be. Right. There were way more people who bought the Castle Doctrine on day, day one. Day one, yeah. Than bought, than bought One Hour One Life on Steam. Castle mm-hmm. Doctrine had all its ducks in a row. It had this launch contest that everybody talking about it. Every news outlet covered it. No one covered One Hour One Life. 
But even if they had, there's two or three, I mean, there are like two places that cover one hour on Lice Launch, right? But even if they had, they don't drive the traffic like they used to, right? Mm -hmm. So getting all your embargoed ducks in a row to have Mm -hmm. like 50, this big PR blast on launch day doesn't really work in the way that it used to. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a game, so if you have a game that has that classic spike and long tail sales curve, which is what mm-hmm. a consumable short game is going to have, uh, because people hear about it when they hear the, read the initial article. And then after that, they stop hearing about it because no one's writing mm-hmm. any more articles after that. Right. Um, if you have that, you depend on this giant spike and that giant spike for most people just isn't there anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you might like, I sold more games month two, I think, for one hour in life than I sold month one. Mm-hmm. I think something like that. I mean, definitely during month two, my, my, my sales slowly climbed, right? From beginning of month two to the end of the month two, my sales doubled, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so that is like, oh, people are playing this. It's, it's catching on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a different kind of game. It's the kind of game that can catch on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and still, like, you know, 18 months later, the game is still selling pretty well, right? Um, and so, like... If if you're making these little narrative games, you need to have this giant spike. And I think the only way that you have a giant spike is if your game is just so jaw-droppingly good that people can't not play it, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't think we've seen too many examples of those. I think we've seen, you know, some of these games are like, oh, maybe five, five years ago this would have been really good. But mm-hmm. by today's standards, it's not that great. And people are kind of shrugging about it, right? Mm-hmm. And that is not a good recipe for a big spike on launch day. Yeah. Um, I think you know, people... No Man's Sky, no Man's Sky mm-hmm. is another example. And it mm-hmm. is an infinitely replayable game and so on. But it, it, a lot of people found that once they started infinitely replaying it, it wasn't that great, right? There was a lot right. of backlash about the game. But that game had a gigantic spike on launch day, right? Mm-hmm. I think within the first week, they sold $70 million <laughs> or something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that was because it, it was a game that so many people couldn't not play because mm-hmm. there was this trailer and it inspired people and people's minds went crazy imagining what it was going to be like and everybody just dogpiled on the thing to buy it, right? Mm-hmm. And there have been a couple of other examples of this. I mean, like um, Hyper Light Drifter, you know, something that has a really strong visual style or something where you're just like, oh my gosh, like I yeah. want to... And Noita is probably something similar. People watch uh, trailers and little videos of what you can do inside Noita, and they're just instantly transfixed. Like, oh my gosh, I've never seen a game like this before. It's so visually beautiful. I want to be in there. I got to play it now. Like, I can't Mm -hmm. wait. Uh, And so um, the other example, I would say it hasn't come out yet, but there's this game, forthcoming game called, I think it's called Last Night, Mm -hmm. uh, which is this uh, pixel art, uh, kind of like out of this world or another world, cyberpunk kind of futuristic game have you seen i uh it it had an e3 trailer that kind of blew everyone away because it's kind of uh it's got a moving camera inside a 2d kind of pixel art Mm -hmm. it's like a cinematic pixel art game um and i can imagine that game because people watch that trailer and their jaws are on the floor like when it comes out everyone's gonna jump on it right 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 Um, right but some of the examples the indie apocalypse games just aren't they just don't they don't grab like there's something about the the name. There's something about the way it's presented. There's something about the trailer where it just doesn't like grab you or doesn't uh, inspire you in the same way. And mm-hmm. if we, if we even compare games like gone home and Tacoma for me personally, I was like, Ooh, gone home sounds really interesting. Mm-hmm. Tacoma just to me personally, as a player, never like never captured my imagination that much. And then it, there was also just like, you know, presentation, voice acting, that stuff is really hard yeah. and it's, it's hard for AAA people to get it right. <laughs> I mean, go play. Uh, what's the uh, uh, oh, what's the game with the red-haired woman who's in this world with all the mechs? 
that are like mechanical animals that are around. Uh, uh the um the Sony Gorilla game one, the Horizon Zero Dawn. No, yeah, Horizon Zero Dawn. Okay, that- so Horizon Zero Dawn, giant studio, giant budget, mm-hmm. super polished in a lot of ways that game, but there's so much wooden dialogue. Mm-hmm. Like I can't remember what her name is, but you know, you come up to this guy again, he's like, ooh. I haven't seen you around here. And then you come up to him again. He's like, Oh, I haven't seen you around here. Do you want to buy something? I just like, yeah. 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 It's difficult. um, Yeah. I mean, voice acting, getting good voice actors, paying for them, paying good writers. I mean, all that stuff. We've always scrimp on that stuff. And for an indie studio, uh, I think it's even harder. Every once in a while, there's lightning in a bottle. I mean, I think, you know, I think, uh, Gone Home was an example of lightning in a bottle where, you know, everything kind of came together where the writing and the emotional tone and the voice acting and everything kind of came together in this way. Stanley Parable is another example mm-hmm. where they you just found this amazing narrator, dude. And he, I mean, he and Davey's an amazing writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, it just kind of comes together into this cohesive, like, holy crap, this is the way it should be experienced. But I think it's much easier to make something that just doesn't really come together, especially if you're trying to do this narrative stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, something that feels clunky, something that's not believable characters, something that, you know, has uh, wooden looking mannequins that don't really animate right. And their lifts don't sink right. And there's uncanny Valley issues. It's just like, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of, there's a lot of sort of really hard to solve problems. Um, and uh, I mean, even like for John Blow's game, The Witness, I don't think that the voice recorders that are scattered all over the place, I don't think they work that well. Right? Mm-hmm. I, th- I think the voice actors aren't quite good enough. A lot of them are reading in kind of a wooden way. Mm-hmm. There's too many different voices. And it's like, who are all these people? And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I don't know. It just doesn't feel like it doesn't feel as well put together as the rest of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he and I know, you know, I'm talking to John, like he really struggled with that part of the game. Like, what is there a story in The Witness? Mm-hmm. Is there any kind of like narrative elements? Is there any kind of thing, any kind of words in the game? And what mm-hmm. are they? Mm-hmm. And there was maybe going to be a story in the witness, but then he wasn't satisfied with it. And he had different voice actors. He was satisfied with them. And he tried himself as a voice actor. He had professional writers helping him. And he just kept going back to the drawing board on this element of the game. Mm-hmm. So even if the mighty, the mighty Jonathan Blow <laughs> mm-hmm. cannot come up with something that's satisfying to him, you know, uh, then, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, it's much more sort of dangerous waters, right? It's much easier to make something that, you know, you're so close to it. You can't really tell. Mm-hmm. You know, I've listened to this, this voice actors clip so many times. Is it good or bad? Like I, mm-hmm. I tried to get some voice acting done for one hour in life trailer um, where I had this idea of, Oh, there could be this trailer where there's this young girl talking about her life. And how it started out and then a middle-aged woman and a teenager and a middle-aged woman. And like you could hear the voice growing up, right? And mm-hmm. eventually she's mm-hmm. an old woman talking about the end of her life in this little like one minute long trailer. Mm-hmm. And so I, I pitched to, I can't remember what it's called, voices.com or voices123 mm-hmm. for voice actors. And I got inundated with responses, people mm-hmm. giving me free examples of them reading my script, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I listened to a bunch of them and some of them are kind of amazing for what they were. It's like, oh, you know, somebody who just did this for free, you know, to pitch to me. Yeah. Uh, but then as I listened to them, I was like, oh, this just doesn't sound right. Like, I just mm-hmm. can't like I'm not good enough as a director of actors mm-hmm. to pull this off. Mm-hmm. And as I'd listen to some of them over and over, I'd be like, well, maybe this is good. I've listened uh, to it too many times now. I can't even tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that it's it's really like we. We're not those people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you're, <laughs> right. you're, you're coming across as a very um, 
we're not Pixar. Like Pixar yeah. workshops the heck out of their mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. They take it back to the drawing board over and over. They have this like what I can't remember the name of the story trust or what the brain trust, right? Mm-hmm. And everybody who's working on a film inside Pixar has to bring it before the brain trust and they pick it apart. All the little narrative elements, any part that feels a little slow or doesn't make sense or doesn't feel emotionally motivated or you know, and and they go back to the drawing board sometimes with projects that they're years into, right? Like mm-hmm. a dinosaur, like they just kept reworking that thing, and it never really. But they knew you know, that wasn't quite right, right? They yeah. reworked it, reworked it, reworked it, and they just couldn't get it right. Yeah. So but those those are the best storytellers in the world, and we don't mm-hmm. have those people. They're yeah. Working in the, in the industry, they're working at Pixar. They're not. At <laughs> we don't have the access direct- to that. Yeah. yeah. The people who are directing the voice actors for a Pixar film. Yeah. Um, you know, they got Holly Hunter. We don't have Holly yeah. Hunter. The last <laughs> yeah. girl, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't have a voice like that, right? So yeah, we have yeah, these yeah. people who, who aren't good enough to be in movies or else they'd yeah. be in movies, right? Because yeah. the pay is better. And yeah. And so, you know, we're kind of, we're on the bottom rung as far as this stuff goes. We are not on the bottom rung as far as like amazing emergent systems go though, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> we blow those movies out of the water in that department, right? Mm-hmm. So a game like Noita, it's firing on all cylinders. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing that makes you cringe a little bit or makes you feel like, oh, that's a little, that could have been done better. It's mm-hmm. like, this is it. Like, this is like a game and it's like the, it's the stuff. It's the, it's, 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 it's the way it should be. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we're trying to do that other stuff though, very often we stumble into this territory where it's like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but like you're, you're you're coming across a point that I think a lot of artists or indie developer uh, simply ignore, right? We're, we're we're making an entertaining product at the end of it, and that needs to factor in as part of the game design because I think people have a natural inclination is like, here's a fistful of money, go make the game you've always wanted to make, and we just go heads down and make that game, but without really addressing the marketing changes and atmosphere of like realistically, can it? sustain itself as a product but also is it worth the damn that anybody else cares and uh that's where art kind of limits itself for the sake of art it's like no you're still making a a thing that people want to buy so you got to factor that in as part of it yeah um, and i think that's that's really important I, I think people tend to discount that or they tend to uh say like oh i wish it wasn't this way why do we have to worry <laughs> about what's going to sell Mm-hmm. But I think for me as a creator, someone who's been trying to make, you know, aesthetically complex and artistically relevant, supposedly artistically relevant work for my entire career. Mm-hmm. I think that, that that kind of grounding is really important. Um, we're not just operating a bubble. I'm not making gallery art, you know, for some curator or something that no one's mm-hmm. going to look at and no one cares about. I'm like making my, because I'm making a commercial product. Like I have to, it has to be good. <laughs> Yeah. I can't, I can't fool myself into thinking that my bad stuff is good. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and go a, a whole career making stuff that in the, at the end of the day, doesn't, no one really likes and doesn't really, you know, it's like, there's a certain, like the rubber is hitting the road here because I'm supporting my family doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also motivates me to keep going. It also motivates me to keep making games, it motivates me to innovate It motivates me to innovate in, in, in ways that are actually interesting to people as opposed to innovating in the sort of vacuum or something right Mm -hmm. um and so i know a lot of people who are supported by like professorships or Mm -hmm. who are supported by you know they go out to seek grants as because they're like working as sort of gallery artists or new media artists or something and some of them are making games that literally 30 or 40 people ever play right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) 
uh, and then you know, they don't even exist. Like they're not online anywhere because they were part of an installation or something, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, it's like, what? I don't know. I don't want, I think, I think, you know, making commercially viable art, um, which is what, you know, independent rock bands and stuff are doing as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's what people who are making movies and TV are doing as well. Um, those things that I don't think that ends up being a barrier to making great work. In fact, I think it's probably where the greatest work is actually being done. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that, you know, like Martin Scorsese in the seventies, eighties, seventies uh, and eighties and nineties was making way greater works of moving images than uh, I can't even name some of these people, but the, like the, the gallery installation video artists. Right. 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 <laughs> you know, no, definitely. Show, like, yeah. They show like a video of some guy falling into a pool over and over or whatever. Right. Mm. Um, and you go and stand in front of it for a few, like 30 seconds and you kind of get your fill of it and you kind of feel a little bored. And then you move on. Right. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, no one's going to pay for that except for a collector and the collector is going to pay enough for it that it doesn't matter that no one else will be willing to pay for it. No one would pay $5 for it if it was made in, in for bulk consumption. Mm-hmm. But all these people just had to go see, I mean, if you were interested in film back in that era, and I'm not even sure what year this came out, but you had to go see Goodfellas and you had to go see Casino, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's just like not, if you're a film person, that movie is, those movies are incredibly relevant to you. Um, and they sold tickets, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But they were really complex, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. groundbreaking artistic achievements <laughs> on mm-hmm. top of everything else, right? So it's like, uh, I think it's, I think it's possible and even important to be factoring those things in. Um, and when the, the, you know, if the audience is really not interested in the short narrative kind of thing, um, or you make a short narrative thing and maybe they're interested in some, but not others. And then, you know, at the end, really you have to acknowledge maybe the thing I made wasn't that good. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the answer. Like mm-hmm. that's always my first inclination. I always try to avoid blaming other factors. The mm-hmm. timing wasn't right. I didn't have the right the press didn't like, you know, I, the press didn't mm-hmm. understand it. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, <laughs> what I made probably wasn't good. That's probably the most obvious piece of evidence, you know, like the most obvious uh, causal mm-hmm. thing. Right. Um, yeah. So when, you know, first step doubt yourself, I see mm-hmm. so many people when something flops, giving 101 reasons why it flopped. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, no, it probably wasn't a great game. That's mm-hmm. probably it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I've had things that didn't do as well as I thought they would or whatever. And it was always because they weren't good enough. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, people have a way to find people, even if you don't get press coverage and even if people don't, you know, it was like, if something's really, really good, it's hard to keep it a secret. Right. Um, the quality products but, have, have long legs. I mean, it, it just shows over and over again that at some point someone will discover the, the, <laughs> The genius of it will be <laughs> wanting to tell someone. And that's essentially what you were talking about at the very beginning of uh, the, the the episode. You were just saying that, you know, word of mouth is still king and kind of harking back with all these avenues now for indie developers that we have so many choices now that we we kind of long for curation, but not really. Those those days are, again, you're a gatekeeper that decides whether or not certain games can make it, which is not exactly the best democratic way of like the best product being out there in front of people. But at least now we have so few resources as indie developers that the indie Oculus, 
the way it affects us is mostly because we're more on our own than ever before. But if you can survive this type of thing, you can survive any change <laughs> in the audience consumption, right? As long as you know how to market yourself and make a quality product and be able to put it out in front of people that no matter wherever we we start streaming games or whatever platform that changes, it, it shouldn't affect the success of your game you're just adapting I also th- it's also i think there's something in- interesting going on here where uh there's also this um sort of pressure to innovate in a way right because mm-hmm. innovation helps you stand out and gives people something to talk about mm-hmm. um and so if your game doesn't really innovate that much then there's much less to talk about much less kind of buzz that can build up around it much less forehead slapping when people hear about your game and like or see it on youtube or whatever Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that, that is probably a positive thing, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, where if you make just another roguelike platformer, um, people are going to be like, yeah, another roguelike platformer. What are we going to say about it? Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's even a really good one, but it's not that doesn't do anything new. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, if you make a roguelike platformer where every pixel is simulated, a simulated material, that's mm-hmm. fully interactive. Mm-hmm. People are like, what? I've never seen a moving screen, um, you know, a GIF that looks like that, right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like the whole level's on fire? Like what? <laughs> you know, which is Noita, right? And so I think, um, and, you know, for one hour in life, um, you know, all my games have been innovative in some way or another. Uh, and oftentimes that has served me very well in terms of, you know, marketing or catching on with people, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, the Castle Doctrine was a game where every player builds a security system and then you go out and try and break through the security systems of other players. Like that little elevator pitch is like, what? Oh my mm-hmm. gosh. Like mm-hmm. everyone says instantly, wow, that's crazy. That sounds cool. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. And when I came up with the idea, I frantically ran to Google to make sure there were no multiplayer burglary games. And there were, I was like, oh, I can't believe I'm the first one to have thought of this. This seems so like obvious. And then, you know, after the castle action came out, all these people came up to me, other friends and game developers, like, I was working on exactly the same thing. We never got it to work though. So we never released it uh-huh. or you beat me to it or whatever. Like it was just mm-hmm. this idea that was just waiting to happen. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it, when someone hears about it, it seems so interesting and obvious, you know, like an obviously interesting thing to try playing that everyone is like, Ooh, I want to try that. Right. Mm-hmm. One hour in life as well. It's like, Oh, very simple. I core idea, multiplayer online survival game where when you join the game, you're born as a helpless baby to another player who's chosen randomly as your mother. Mm-hmm. And, you know, instantly when people hear that, even people who don't play games, their gears start turning, right? They're like, oh, mm-hmm. what? Mm-hmm. Wait, what's going to happen then? What if she doesn't take care of you? What if she's mm-hmm. mean to you? What if she does this to you? You know, and like, yeah, that's what the game's about. Exactly. Isn't that interesting? And they're like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so, you know, that kind of then, then if we compare that to, you know, to pick on Overland again, it's like Overland's a post-apocalyptic game in this beautiful little 2D diorama. Mm-hmm. Um diorama scenes but it's kind of a turn-based strategy game where you mm-hmm. gather resources and control decide your right. which units are and decide when to spend resources and so on mm-hmm. um and it's procedurally generated and kind of roguelike and but you know there's not a there's not a, a conceptual hook mm-hmm. right i just described it to you the best way that i can i can't really say anything else I can't mm-hmm. sum it up in some way that's like a lightning bolt in your mind that gets your gears mm-hmm. turning. You're like, huh, mm-hmm. I've kind of played games like that. Maybe I've never played one that looked as cool as this one looks. It does look really amazing mm-hmm. <laughs> visually. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I've never played one with dogs, you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, there's a couple of little cool things about it. that are like, ooh, there's dogs in it. Or, ooh, this, you know, uh, you gotta, you, you're gonna have to abandon some of your people and you can't keep everyone alive. Ooh, that's kind of like Fire Emblem, you know, mm-hmm. uh, 
but there's not there's not a there's not a a, a, a punch in the a, on the heart of the head right yeah <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Uh, and you know no man's sky also exactly the same thing right Mm-hmm. you know this infinite simulated procedurally generated universe where every planet is different and you can go wherever you want mm-hmm. right that's my elevator pitch for the game and everyone's head just explodes when they hear that right yeah so yeah. um so i think that uh that in order to stand out among the 40 games that come out on steam every day mm-hmm. <laughs> in order to get people talking about your game in order to make your game worthy of making youtube videos about and all the other things like being that innovative is important and i think that that's really healthy um yeah you know, and I think that that, is, that that pushes us and challenges us to mm-hmm. not just status quo. Um, you know, I think another example is uh, FTL mm-hmm. uh, versus uh, Into the Breach, which was the next game. Mm-hmm. And Into the Breach was a big success, kind of riding on the coattails of FTL. But I think everyone, I think even if you go now, there's more people playing FTL than Into the Breach at this moment. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> FTL is like 10 years old or something. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, we talked to the guys uh, at, at, at the company they were like, yeah, you know, this game was really successful, but not as big as FTL. Mm-hmm. Um, but even that's a simple, it's like, you know, Into the Breach is just not, you know, FTL is like, like nothing else. There had never been anything quite like that before. And it was mm-hmm. really like, oh, wait, there's this like crew and you're on a spaceship and you're running around from room to room in the spaceship and, you know, and deciding what to do. And part of the spaceship's on fire. You know, it's like, there's something like so new about it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And Into the Breach was just more like, oh, it's a turn-based kind of isometric strategy game. Um, so yeah, I think that uh, it just doesn't you know it just doesn't capture and then like grab people in the same way, right? Right, and I think you're actually uh, maybe discovering the reason why a lot of these games don't work, <laughs> which is uh, it, it always starts with the elevated pitch and then like extrapolating that and making people wanting to know more and be curious about what you're going to say next about the game. So like getting them hooked initially is very important and getting them to ask questions and kind of shoot off ideas and get them excited is the, the seed to uh, making it buzzworthy. And as an indie industry, right? We are, this is where the old ways kind of would have helped or could be helping uh, smaller developers is that, the 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 combination of the gatekeeper of getting financial people to put money behind your game is getting through that initial pitch making it sound like people who don't give a damn to finally give a damn uh there is something to that process that is largely missing because now that we have so much access to kind of have an idea put our game out there and self-publish you know we're not needing those gatekeepers there to kind of express ourselves freely, but also we are missing that element of testing it, testing the idea against. Yeah. I mean, that's an excellent point. Professionals. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so in the old days, what would happen is you'd kind of make your game and then steam would shoot it down and it mm-hmm. wouldn't go on steam. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't good enough because it wasn't innovative enough because it wasn't mm-hmm. interesting enough. Mm-hmm. And you would just kind of go back with your tail between your legs and blame steam for why your game didn't sell. Right. <laughs> now you're like, Oh sure. A hundred bucks. I'll put it on steam. Mm-hmm. And my game didn't sell. Oh, mm-hmm. what's going wrong now? There has to be some other reason. Like it's like, you know, so, and, and also if you needed to get a publisher behind you, you even earlier, earlier days. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there was, there was an indie industry of boxed games back before mm-hmm. Steam, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really know. I mean, people were buying like Aquaria, I think was being sold on the website on its own website and it wasn't on, you know, I think it was before Steam existed, but, um, or like Gish, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the Gish was something that eventually made it into boxes on retail shelves somewhere. Yeah. Um, 
So, you know, you have to, you know, get a company behind what you're doing uh, with you know, money. And so yet you are kind of being vetted there. And now people are just, you're right. They're left to their own devices. And then they're, you know, they're all expecting these amazing results mm-hmm. from, you know, something that, you know, most people will tell them this isn't, this isn't that amazing. Yeah. Now in terms of elevator pitches, that's an interesting thing because it's like, okay, maybe some, some games, uh, um, uh, are, are amenable to that, right? Like one hour of life, you can sum it up in one sentence in a way that gets people interested. Castle Doctrine as well. Noita as well, right? Um, but there's other games that are very good and maybe very innovative, but innovative in a sort of a more diffuse way, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so then how do you pitch that, right? Like how do you mm-hmm. pitch uh, What Remains of Edith Finch? Which mm-hmm. is really innovative, but in this, you can't really, it's not innovative in a one-liner, like, you know, <laughs> Mm-hmm. I can't, you know, uh, it's a narrative game with all these different kind of completely different narrative gameplay things and mm-hmm. mechanics that are stitched together, you know, in a wacky house. I mean, it's like, yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, the other one is the Stanley parable, right? It's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of has to be experienced to really understand what's interesting about it. Mm-hmm. And so that game is sort of unpitchable in a way. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but a game that games that are as good as those two games are, sell themselves through word of mouth during the brief interval anyway. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I don't know. Have you ever, so I'm assuming you played the Stanley parable, right? Yeah. Yeah. I played okay. it. Did yeah. you ever play the Stanley parable demo? No, most people haven't. De- yeah. And it's really, I highly recommend it. It's free of course, but mm-hmm. when you go to play, it's like, okay, what's the Stanley parable demo? How do you make a demo for this game <laughs> that is so singular and just has to be experienced to even be understood at all. Right. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. How do you, how do you, pitch it to potential customers the stanley parable demo is a completely separate game that has nothing to do with the stanley parable <laughs> mm. so it just and it's the best game demo ever it's actually uh-huh. maybe it maybe is better than the stanley parable <laughs> oh wow i highly recommend it <laughs> so right uh uh, anyway, so that is like an example of like it's so singular that you can't even make a demo of it you can't really even explain it to people even if you showed a trailer or shot, you know, it's like, it's, it just has to be experienced. Right. Cause it's, it's, it's about the gag, right. It's, mm-hmm. it's like it's, mm-hmm. the gag is what you're experiencing. That's, you know, uh, mm-hmm. or I don't, it's not really a gag. I don't want to simplify it that way, but you know, the, the aesthetic space that it places you in is the whole point. Right. And yeah. So, well, that would be the marketing pitch. And it's like, it's just something you got to experience. <laughs> like I wouldn't talk about the game. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you got to yeah. do it. Everyone's yeah, talking about it. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I like to uh, would want to move the conversation. You kind of touched this a bit, how the uh, the old ways of doing things kind of staying with that theme where we relied so much on the press junket to kind of promote to have the day one sale to kind of determine the fate of our games. Right. How that is changing. And I think I've read uh, an article about you kind of highlighting how streaming and and uh, playing your game or, or or other avenues for people to experience your game before purchasing is doing a lot better for people to actually decide on buying your game. Right. Can you uh, expand a bit, a bit? Because I didn't realize it until I actually read through it and, and listening to you that yeah, it's pretty much true. I mean, I read it just for the fun of it about like how this game is, but it doesn't really entice me to like buy now or even if the guy strongly recommends me to buy, it's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's not as strong as a recommendation as before. And I guess where are they catering to 
Uh, obviously, their website is still a, an ecosystem for their readers where they stay within, right? It seems more like a Twitter thing. People don't click on links or anything, right? Well, you're, you're asking like who... So if people who buy games don't read these articles, which they obviously don't, because mm-hmm. the articles have no impact on sales, it seems. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, another quick example is like, and this is should be obvious to everybody, but like I've had my games covered on national public radio mm-hmm. three times now. Oh, wow. Um, and including one hour, one life, right? Mm-hmm. So on the day when it goes live nationally, this was on the show, wait, wait, I know it's the show to the best of our knowledge, right? So I'm on a 10 minute segment where I'm being interviewed about my mm-hmm. game, mm-hmm. Um, which I think, so I did one about Passage. Of course, that wasn't even being sold. I did another one about Cordial Menuet, uh, which was available for people to deposit money into at the time. And I did another one about one hour, one life. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the day that goes live nationwide, mm-hmm. you do not generally see even a spike in web traffic mm-hmm. on your game's website, right? Because mm-hmm. people who listen to NPR, obviously, mm-hmm. <laughs> generally don't play video games or go out on websites to find out more about video games. They're fascinated by the idea. They the want to hear about it. Yeah. Yeah. They're fascinated by the story and this developer and his interesting idea and whatever, but they are not going to go um, buy a game. Mm-hmm. Similarly, I was in you know the in-flight magazine, Hemispheres, I think it's called, on uh, United Airlines, or I can't remember which airline it's on. Uh, for you know, when you're in the in-flight magazine, you're there in the seat back pocket mm-hmm. for like a whole month. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was this big, you know, profile about me and my family and about Diamond Trust of London and everything. And I've had so many people come up to me within the next year or two saying, I recognize you from somewhere <laughs> when I meet them for the first time or something. Like, mm-hmm. I think I saw you in some mag. Yeah, the because pretty much everybody's bored on the flight and they all read the yeah. magazine. Even yeah, though it's, yeah, yeah. it's an awful magazine, really, it's yeah. one of the worst yeah. magazines. Uh, you know, in terms of like, oh, these articles are so short and they ask such dumb questions in the interviews, and you know, mm-hmm. uh, but everybody who ever flew that month, you know, saw this thing and 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 got a taste and read my profile. Right mm-hmm. now, none of them play video games. None of them went out and bought Diamond Trust of London or whatever was being talked about in the article, mm-hmm. but they all saw it and absorbed it. Right, and so mm-hmm. I think that. Um, that's obvious, right? So then we mm-hmm. get over to the gaming press, which used to be the place that people went when they wanted to figure out what game to play. They mm-hmm. used to go and read these reviews. They used to go and be, you know, watching Rock Paper Shotgun or Kotaku or whatever to talk about um, what you know what interesting games are coming out. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Kotaku covered one of my old indie games back in the day, like Gravitation or something. Mm-hmm. It would just be this dr- like deluge of traffic coming to mm-hmm. try the game. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, or when they covered some of my games that were for sale back in the day, it would be this like deluge of people buying the game that day. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not the case anymore. So what's going on there? I think that uh, the reality is that the gaming press has actually been kind of gutted financially. Mm-hmm. Um, that the audience has kind of dried up. That they're kind of in a goat. A lot of them are operating skeleton crews. Mm-hmm. Uh, people barely getting paid. Mm-hmm. You you write to some guy who covers games and you're like, you know, you want to cover this and he's got to go beg for funding from somebody mm, to, you know, write to, it. to be able to write about it. Right. And then he'll come back and say, Oh, my editor doesn't have that. And you know, he's not willing to pay me to write about this right now mm-hmm. um, because they just don't have like the advertising dollars aren't there. Like they used to be, everything's kind of the whole landscape has changed. It's still mm-hmm. there. I mean, a lot of the websites are gone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what's the, uh, wasn't there one called one up? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a couple there's a couple more like that that are, are completely gone. Um, and then a lot of the other ones are kind of run by um, 
like a fan community or like, you know, I don't know. It's kind of feels like destructoid. A lot of mm-hmm. those articles are written for free maybe. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and so, uh, you know, where these things used to be like these uh, hubs of the gaming world or hubs of game communities. Um, I, I think that there's sort of, there's still the appearance of it operating the way it used to, but I think the numbers are way, way lower in terms of readership, in terms of engagement, in terms of what authors are being paid most of the the better writers and games have left game writing, right? I mean, almost mm-hmm. all the people I know who used to write about games and were really good writers now do something else. They're all, you know, doing PR consulting or working on game development themselves or whatever, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. it's like, what's left are these kind of people who are kind of enthusiasts and maybe they're barely scraping by. I mean, some some of them will tell me if I ask them personally, oh yeah, our website is still doing great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, really? Mm-hmm. there's only two comments on every article like what you're right right it's true it's true yeah <laughs> um so i think that that that's just yeah and, and and um and i think and nobody likes to talk about this but i and i may, I may be tarred and feathered for saying but i think it has something to do with gamergate as well mm. um i think that there was uh, a kind of uh, in in a lot of ways i think at least a good portion of the gaming populace felt like these websites kind of got caught with their pants down in terms of, and, mm-hmm. and this is a hundred, you know, and I have experienced this myself, right? Because mm-hmm. they were covering things, not because they were good, but because they were friends with the people right. or they had a previous relationship with these people from previous games. And they did that mm-hmm. for me all the time, right? Like, mm-hmm. Oh, you, you, you covered passage, you covered mm-hmm. gravitation. Well, here's my new game. And they'd instantly write back and instantly cover it. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> it was like pre Gamergate, like, I went to Kotaku to show Cordial Minuet, which is a pretty obscure idea, right? This like mm-hmm. grid of numbers. It looks kind of like a bingo card where you're playing for real money against another person and, and outguessing them. Um, I went to the New York City offices of Kotaku and showed uh, Stephen Totillo the game. You know, I showed it to him for like 20, 30 minutes, right? And we played a couple of games against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even think it had finished artwork in it. I think it was just a plain grid of numbers. Mm-hmm. He wrote this like must've been like a 20 page. It was like the longest Kotaku article I've ever seen. Right. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you mm-hmm. keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling all these screenshots, all this discussion of the, in, in, the details of the strategy and everything. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, like that kind of article won't be written today. Right. 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 <laughs> and he did that in part because he had been following my career and he knew my stuff. You know, it was like, no. I had my foot in the door. I could, I could email him and go into the offices and show him this thing. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that people kind of got wise to that and realized that, People were either people inside the game industry, journalists, journalism industry were either covering their friends' games or games of people they were fans of, right? Um, without merit, right? Mm-hmm. Or they were uh, covering games that had some kind of political agenda that they were on board right. with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that people just kind of like, yeah, like, yeah, this, this is. And I, I'd see it too. Also, whenever my games were covered, my games often have some kind of little edge to them or something, mm-hmm. and there would always be a political comment in the coverage. Mm. right like mm-hmm. the choice of not allowing men to have babies in this game is a controversial one it's science yeah what, yeah but you know this is definitely gonna ruff, ruffle some feathers <laughs> sure uh <laughs> or using the word problematic to describe the design choices <laughs> i made right um so anyway i saw that happen a bunch of times uh where it was clear that the people covering the games had some kind of political agenda or we're trying to paint me in some kind of negative political light. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so that was all pre-Gamergate, right? So I, I kind mm-hmm. of witnessed this firsthand and I was the beneficiary of it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's like I'm guilty as charged. Yes, I used to email my friends and uh, not friends. I mean, I didn't know them from outside of journalism, but I'd email people that had interviewed me and become friendly with me mm-hmm. to get coverage, right? Right, right. Um, and so they don't do that anymore, by the way, for the most part. <laughs> mm-hmm. When I email them, even if I've known them for years, they don't even write back. Mm-hmm. Not allowed. So, well, I don't know. I don't know. Or they're too busy or they don't care about indie games. I mean, a lot of them don't cover independent games anymore. In the same right. That they used to. Yeah. I mean, you know, trying to get people to cover one hour in life, which was this, you know, easily coverable game because it's so weird. <laughs> There's yeah. so much interesting stuff to talk about. It was like yeah. pulling teeth. I'd yeah. write back to them over and over and over again. And they'd finally mm-hmm. come back and say, no, not at this time. You know, it's like, okay, this is definitely the most pressworthy and interesting game I've ever worked on, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's also my most successful by like, you know, factor of four financially, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So like, you know, people are, there's one guy who's made like three YouTube videos a week for 18 months. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, this whole channel is, you know, nothing but, you know, 3,000 view, view or more uh, every, you know, he, he has a pretty big audience and he, he pretty much covers nothing but one hour in life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so clearly there's stuff to talk about there. There's stuff worthy of, you know, but like still like, you know, Polygon has never covered it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kotaku has never covered it. I think PC Gamer marginally covered it and Rock Paper Shotgun covered it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just like, yeah, okay. Polygon's not going to cover one hour in life. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it sounds to me, man, like the future is um, not exactly that it's a different type of coverage is evolving right now it's where it used to be about press junkets and people writing articles and now we're aiming it more towards streamers and people and it's actually more research should be done towards people who are doing this and streaming your game uh to ask them like what exactly are the type of content that you like to stream like what resonates with your audience and and thinking along those lines to make it more of a long tail for your game. It seems it's just like the, the, the shift is towards those people more than people yeah, so writing something articles. Else interesting yeah. to talk about there, which is that, um, I've seen giant streamers cover one hour in life, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody emailed me on the weekend, like, dude, lyric is streaming one hour in life at this moment. Holy crap. Mm-hmm. And you go and look and you're just like, yeah, there's 30,000 people <laughs> yeah, watching one hour awesome. life at this mm-hmm. moment. And there's, so in that case, I remember specifically, there was like no jump in, very no in spikes. Sales. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no spikes that day. Other people, like when C's covered the game one time mm-hmm. or just played it on a stream, there was this pretty big spike that day. But mm-hmm. then he played it the next day and there wasn't, the spike didn't continue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like when Dragast first covered the game on mm-hmm. his YouTube channel, there was this huge bump in sales. But as he continued to cover it, you know, the, it didn't continue, right? So it's like, there's there's this idea that, first of all, Certain people buy games and certain other ones don't. And people who tend to watch Twitch streams for the most part, I definitely was seeing way bigger spikes uh, in the beginning when some big YouTuber would cover the game than when some big Twitch streamer would cover the game. Because mm-hmm. it's like people who are watching Twitch are not there to figure out what game to buy. They're, they're just there. killing time. Yeah. They're killing time. Well, I don't want to hurt feelings. Yeah. Yeah. They're there as a form of relaxation and mm-hmm. passive entertainment. And right. they also really want to be part of this little community. Of, right. And in some cases, big community of people who are chatting on the yeah. sidebar. And they want to get recognized by the celebrity that they've become enamored with who is right. a streamer, right? Yeah, that's um, the product. They want to get C's to, yeah. to shout out to them or whatever. Yeah. Um, they th- want to hear lyrics, funny jokes. 
mm. uh, whatever he's gonna say about you know vaginas or whatever in one hour of life yeah yeah, yeah. you know that they they, they want to be there for that and they're there because of the personality more than the game mm-hmm. and uh they're not shopping they're not like looking for but people who are on youtube are more like hmm, i'm trying to figure out what game to play let's watch a let's play of it a little bit until you saturate each streamer or youtubers audience and you get all the people in that audience who are in the market for buying your game potentially and then it trails off right in terms of the impact of each new video right Mm -hmm. so it's like each of these youtubers has a different audience and the audiences don't necessarily overlap and in each audience there's some subset of people who are the types of people who actually buy your game and once it your game has been shown to those people it's kind of over right Mm -hmm. you can keep going back to the same streamer and be like hey you want to cover my game again and even if they do it doesn't really necessarily do anything right right um so that's interesting uh the other interesting thing is um kind of related to this is that despite all this crazy coverage that you get in all these different places uh where the you know you have obviously hundreds of thousands of people uh if not millions of i think the top video for one hour life has you know some some youtuber made has over a million views right so Mm -hmm. millions of people have seen something about one hour on life when i was at penny arcade expo having my booth uh this was just a couple of weeks ago Mm -hmm the vast majority of people who came to the booth had never even heard of the game. Right. Which was weird, right? I'm at a, mm-hmm. a game fan conference where expo, where everybody there is like a diehard game player mm-hmm. who's walking around trying to play their favorite games and spends a lot of their time thinking about games and reading about games and watching streams about games and everything. And despite every, every, all the coverage and one hour life has gotten, you know, way more kind of coverage and attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, day to day, if I'm walking around and I talk to some kid who plays games I mentioned that I make games like in my neighborhood or something. Mm-hmm. They'll be like, what game? And I'll describe it. Like, I saw that on YouTube. Oh my mm-hmm, gosh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, there is some, you know, penetration into these other kind of realms of existence mm-hmm, outside mm-hmm, of just mm-hmm. my fans or something. Um, they probably don't own the game, but all these people came up to the booth and they're like, I've never heard of this game. Mm-hmm. You explain it to me. Mm-hmm. And I'd explain it to them, you know, and give them the elevator pitch about being born as a helpless baby or whatever. And mm-hmm. um, so, uh, you know, Chris Hecker has this old adage that he always tells independent developers, which is, you know, no one, nobody knows about your game. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's how much coverage you think you've gotten or whatever. Nobody's no, nobody knows about your game, right? Nobody's yeah. heard of it. So always like know that there's just as uh, however many people you think have heard about your game and been exposed to it. There's this huge hundred times realm. they don't care. <laughs> well, no, they don't care. Not that they don't care. They just haven't even heard, had a chance to hear. Yeah. Something. Right, right, right. Um, and so that is true. And so I think that with each of these new streamers and new YouTubers and kind of, there's a different segment of the audience that hasn't, because the people who watch C's are not, they don't watch people who watch C's don't watch lyric. And the people who watch lyric don't watch Dragas. And the people who watch mm-hmm. Dragas, you know, PewDiePie has his own cadre of people. And you know, each of these people has like a following. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I think that there's also, yeah, something to be said there about which which people in those groups uh, are actually in the market for buying games and which are just sort of killing time or just entertaining themselves by watching games. Mm-hmm. Um, so oh, one another another interesting thing is that I had this, it's in the middle of my second month, I had this huge spike. So I was going around going along like two thousand dollars a day or something in the second month, right? And then all of a sudden one day it was like eight thousand dollars in one day, and then went back mm-hmm. to normal. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "What is this?" And I was looking at the graphs, like trying to figure it out. And then I moused over and I was like, "Oh wait a minute, that that's Christmas Day." <laughs> Oh. <laughs> so that's the day when all these kids who have no credit cards yeah uh 
get their Steam gift cards and their stockings. Right. And they've been hearing for the past month because the game came out in November about this game and they've been waiting to buy it, right? And right. so, um, you know, it's weird. You wouldn't think Christmas Day is like a day when people buy stuff buying buying being buying stuff at all right but they're buying video games that makes Uh, sense so that's all that's another thing to think about right it's like Mm -hmm. that there is this as we get older we tend to forget this but Mm -hmm. you know uh people my age don't buy games anymore yeah um so i'm not like i i i'm not making i'm not really i mean yes i'm uh, people my age do appreciate the game i'm making and kind of talk about and think about it but most of them even if they buy it because they want to support it or they just want to try it they play it for a couple of hours. I'm like, oh, I had my great experience with one hour in life. Thank you, Jason. And they're done. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the people who are really playing games are like my son, my 16 year old son and people younger than him. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so many barriers in in their way in terms of actually getting a game. Right. Like to right. them, we mm-hmm. get these emails from people who can't get the game working for one reason or another occasionally. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're so heartbroken. Mm-hmm. They're like either from sometimes it's from the person's mother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been trying to get my son work install on Windows 10 for the past hour, and he's he's in tears. You know, yeah, he's been yeah, wanting yeah, to play yeah. the game so long, he's so disappointed. Yeah. Or you know, I've saved up my 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 birthday money for months, and I finally mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. this is the one game I can afford to buy. Right. <sighs> so it's 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 hard to kind of have that perspective from our point of view as like you know for me as like an adult with like three kids and a spouse and I'm supporting a family. Like I never really have to think twice if I want to buy a game. Right. Right. Like, I have the budget as part of my business expenses for research purposes and so on. It's just like, I don't buy that many games, but I never like, Hmm, I can't afford that. I got to save up for it. Right. Um, so a lot of these people are looking for the biggest bang for their buck because they can only buy one game for the next several months. Mm-hmm. Right. And so they're kicking the tires of every game. They're watching all these YouTube videos, trying to figure out which is going to be the best investment because they're not just going to go spend 20 bucks to try something. They're basically spending 20 bucks to join a player community, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. to become not somebody who has tried one hour in life, but somebody who plays one hour in life. They're looking mm-hmm. for the next Discord to sink into and the next right. forums to be part of and the next mm-hmm. thing that's going to kind of be their game for a while, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what are you currently playing? like it's kind of like asking somebody what you know what are you reading these days or something it's like what are you what are you currently playing you know i've been playing subnautica for the and you talk to people yeah they've been playing subnautica you know for the past month that's Mm -hmm. their game currently right or they're currently into this game one hour life or they're currently playing factorio or they're currently you know sinking into noita or whatever they're doing right um and so that is kind of the way people are thinking about games now um and this next generation we've forgotten what it's like i mean i remember saving my pennies i mean everything's totally different right so we can't compare but like you know when i knew super mario 3 was coming out mm-hmm. <laughs> and i had my gosh it must have been 50 dollars saved up uh you know and i couldn't find a store that I actually had it in stock because it was selling out everywhere right and i was like calling toys r us every day to see if it had came in yet and finally it came in one day and my mom couldn't take me there that day even though i had the money you know it's like i was calling my friend's mom to see if she could take me to toys r us that day because they've got one copy of super mario 3 <laughs> uh you know but but that would you know that was like something that was like an event right um and so remembering putting ourselves back in that mindset of like the majority of our audience like a game purchase is this event right mm-hmm. um and so if you think about it that way then and I think maybe what had happened with you know the gone home successes and the narrative, the short narrative game successes like five years ago was that there was still an audience of people who had disposable income and were still playing games. And I think like a lot of those people have gotten older and don't anymore. <laughs> or something. 
Yeah, we have distractions now, so <laughs> I got real life problems than to yeah, sit yeah. around so, and play. So then we're left with the people who have always been playing games, and those types of people are not at all interested in plunking mm-hmm. down fifteen dollars right. on something that's to be over in two hours, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, Jason, we are at that one hour mark, and dude, we need to definitely follow up with a part two on this because this is a topic that is the 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 whole seed of this podcast is about it's just understanding the market and being able to go out there and promote great quality products and be successful at it and uh i wanted to thank you for your time and this is part of the podcast where i hand the mic over to you to self-promote give attention (laughs) to shout out to anybody out there uh and it is all yours i'm gonna shut up now yeah, um, so I, you know, I've got a lot of games on my website, but the one I'm currently working on is One Hour One Life, uh, and you can find that on Steam or on my own website. You just do a search for One Hour One Life. Um, about I'm right, actually, right after I get off the mic here, I'm going to go put out the update for the week because I've been updating it weekly for the past 18 months. <laughs> that's uh, awesome. Man. So yeah, you can get on board with the with the latest update. Um, and uh, that's all I'm going to pitch, I guess. Uh, that's that's kind of my life right now. That's awesome, man. Thanks again, Jason. It was a pleasure talking to you. And I'm serious. I'm going to follow up with you with other stuff. Um, It was truly enlightening. I learned a lot. (laughs) And I want to thank you again. The other thing thing I'll mention Mm -hmm. is there's the the talk I gave at GDC, uh, which was back in March of 2019. It's called uh, 2014 versus 2000 or 2000 something versus 2000 something. Mm -hmm. Financial success before and after the India apocalypse. Mm-hmm. So if you look up like Jason or GDC talk on YouTube, you can watch that whole thing. And there's all sorts of graphs and analysis yeah. and in-depth stuff. So that that you know is kind of a an adjunct uh, uh, or appendix to this talk or to this this podcast. We're definitely going to link that into the video description as well as the audio podcast for people to find that talk. Uh, That's how I found you and I found it very interesting as well. And people really do need to dig into this and take control of their own success. So uh, thank you again. And that ends today's podcast. Thank you, everybody. All right. Thanks. See you guys next week.